welcome to the Co-Create Cafe. This is a space where we get curious about expanding our mental freedom, listening to our soul, and co-creating our best life. Join me and my guests as we explore living intentionally and discovering more choice in our everyday. I'm Esty Raskin. Welcome, Zafira Lightstone, to the Co-Create Cafe. I'm so excited to have you on here. For those of you that don't know, Zafira is an illustrator and a strong voice, a strong activist for Judaism and for Israel. And she lives in Israel with her husband and two children. And I'm really excited to speak to you today. Thanks for being on. Thank you, Esty. It's really great to be here. Thank you for letting me be a part of this. Yeah, I appreciate that you are taking time out of your very busy day to talk to us. So can you just start telling us about your upbringing, about your childhood? Okay. So we were chatting earlier about what I could talk about and how to bring my story into this podcast. And I felt that it was really necessary to share my childhood story because it's not a regular story that you would hear every day. And I know that my story is not alone. I'm not alone in what I've experienced and that there are many other people that have experienced what I have, but that I want other people to be able to listen to it to know that I'm here with them. <laughs> so I'm from Los Angeles, California, born and raised. And I'm trying to think of where to begin. My parents got divorced when I was around the age of seven. And up until that point, I had a pretty standard childhood involved in a lot of art and creativity and after school programs and community events. And my family was not religious. We were lightly Jewish affiliated with Passover Seders and occasional Rosh Hashanah, Rosh, going to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah, going to Reform Synagogue. Sometimes there was a little bit of Hebrew school mixed in there, but I don't have a lot of memory about it because I was very young. And by the age of seven, my parents got divorced and what was a very standard, I use quotation marks for yeah. those who can't see, <laughs> not normal, but what in the relative of normal childhood life completely changed in a 180 turn of direction. And what happened was a lot of stuff. <laughs> Where do I begin? What was the biggest change for you? What was the biggest difference at that age? Several years after the divorce, we moved out of my childhood home, and that was a very big change. And around the same time, my father was no longer in communication with us. And that was the first big wave that hit me, which lasted about three years. Mm -hmm. How did this affect you internally? Like, what was your emotional state like? I would say that I was very much disconnected. Mm -hmm. and unaware of the impact that this has on me and what would have for the rest of my life. I was at a stage in my life where I was still young that kids adapt for better or for worse. They adapt to the situations that life throws at them. And I took that on and was not connected to my emotions at all. Did anybody talk to you about how it affected you as a kid? As a kid, I remember my grandmother speaking to me. My grandmother is my mother's mother. My father's mother, we lost touch with after the divorce. But my, my grandmother was, she used to say to me, don't you miss him? Don't you want to speak to him? This is not okay. 
And I remember not feeling really connected to the gravity of, of it and wondering why is she making this such a big deal? Mm-hmm. At what point in your life did you realize what a big deal it had been for you? In my adult years, definitely. By the time I was in my 20s and married as a parent. How did you get to that point of realizing that and had such an effect on you and that you were ready to maybe heal from it? I would say that this wasn't the only thing that impacted me at the time. And it was one of the many layers of healing that I had to work through Mm -hmm. as a result of a lot of trauma that happened to me at the age. So because at the same time as my father not communicating with me and my brother, we also went through additional large changes and unfortunate events that took precedent over the pain ups I should have probably been experiencing. Uh Can you tell us about that? What happened at that time? So after my parents got divorced and my father was no longer in communication with us, we hit a really hard time financially. And my mother was having a hard time making ends meet. And this also happens around the same time that my brother... So I want to pause for a second and say that the way my memory works is that some things may not be specifically exact in chronological order, Mm -hmm. but it all happened within a span of seven years together. Okay. But my father's disappearance was from 10 to 13 about, and my brother becoming religious. At the time, we were not affiliated with any active religious community, was around age 13. Mm-hmm. And around the same time, my mom hit a hard spot financially and we couldn't afford to live in the apartment we were renting. And because my brother became religious, what happened was this beautiful spiritual changeover in our household where the kitchen became kosher and we started walking the Chabad community in Los Angeles and going to Friday night meals. And he switched from public school to private Jewish school. So your mother went along with him. Is that what happened? She was very supportive. She was Mm -hmm. very, very supportive. She wanted him to be involved in a very wholesome community. Like it was just a perfect fit. My mom is also very spiritual, so she was very supportive of it. And where were you in the picture? I was very confused. I'm a very easygoing personality. So on one hand, I'm going along with it. This is what we're doing, but also at the same time, I did not really want to stop watching TV on Saturdays and I didn't want to stop wearing jeans and I didn't want to stop eating non-kosher out of the convenience of what I ate at school and with my friends. And there became a sort of split in my life where my English name is Jillian. So there was Jillian who would go to public school and be around my friends that I grew up with. And then there was Safira who would go to the Shabbat meals and she'd be wearing a skirt and she'd be really quiet. And there sort of became two different worlds of mine mm-hmm. where I sort of balanced in between the two and made them work, even though I didn't really know where I fell at all. Wow. And you were also a teenager at this point. Early teens. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's a lot. Yeah. I forgot to mention that my mom got into a toxic friendship 
with someone after the divorce and stayed in our life up until I was about 15 years old. So from seven to 15 approximately. And he brought in a lot of toxic energy and a lot of anger into the environment that was also very traumatic. Mm -hmm. And at the time when my brother became religious and started attending yeshiva was the same time where we had to move out of the apartment that we were currently living in. And at that point we became homeless. We didn't have anywhere to go. Wow. So where were you? So my mother found us a several back houses to stay in, in LA. It's an LA term back house. It's back house is either a mother-in-law unit or it's a house in the backyard that is a separate unit with a bathroom and a kitchen. Usually they're small, they're probably studio spaces. So, so my memory is blurry, but what it looked like was living out of a suitcase and very small, unset up conditions, living in a back house for several weeks and then another back house for several weeks and then living in someone's bedroom in their house, which was very uncomfortable for me as a teenager because I was sharing a room with my mom sleeping on a bed and she's on one side of the room and I'm on the other side of the room and I had no privacy. Mm -hmm. So you're moving around place to place, didn't have a settled base to call home. Yeah, and that lasted, I think it was about five moves in total when I once counted it. <laughs> it was like five moves in one year. And then finally we settled across the street from the yeshiva in Los Angeles. And we stayed there for the rest of my high school years. But it was this one solid year of not really having a place to go home. Mm -hmm. Now take us into your adult life. What does that look like? Did you go to college after high school? And then where did you go from there? So, okay, I'm gathering all the thoughts. Yeah, take your time. There's a lot. <laughs> I need to make like a chronological like, timeline of how- a map of Sephira. <laughs> that would be so helpful. <laughs> so by the time I was graduating high school, I was in these two worlds. I was in the public school world where I was Jillian and I was in- deep in the Sephira world. I was a camp counselor. I was, I loved the Shabbat meals and I loved connecting with the community, but there were two me's and the community that I was a part of was very influential in wanting me to go to seminary. They felt that it would be a great way for me to get exposure to a Jewish education and help keep me in the fold, I guess, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and at first I felt confused about it, but at some point I decided to do this and it was also the, the mainstream, nobody was supporting me to go to college. Mm -hmm. There was no one saying let's, I didn't take my SATs. I didn't apply to any colleges. Nobody was helping me and guiding me in what I should study or, and I say that because I make up that in, I'm using quotation marks. I make up that in other families, children would have that sort of guidance when it came time to college applications. They have their parents sit down with them. They have guidance and the only guidance I had was to go to seminary. So by default, it was the option that I chose. It was the direction that I was given. If I wanted it or not, I don't, I think what I really wanted was to go to Israel and that was a great excuse to go to Israel. Right. And yeah, so, so that was in 2006 and that was the same year as the Lebanon war. So we, I was too scared to go to Israel at the time. And instead I went to a year 
and of seminary outside of Montreal, and it's called the Karabach, BMC based Moshe Chaim. It's run by Rebetzin Karabach. Is it a Chabad seminary? A Chabad seminary. Okay. Yeah. So how was that experience? It wasn't for me, unfortunately. Okay. I met a lot of, I met people there that are still my friends today, which is really special, but I went from public school to a seminary where I wasn't allowed to wear earrings over an inch and a half and I had to wear skirts that went, you know, covered my knees and no words allowed on your sweater and no cell phones allowed and no iPods because that was the thing back then. Right, and, iPods. <laughs> and uh-huh. no laptops and, you know, learning all day long with a bunch of other girls that came from backgrounds. So it was a huge jump for me, spiritually and emotionally, for sure. Was there an understanding like of your background? She was very understanding. And I think they tried their best to accommodate me. Mm-hmm. And I don't have complaints so much about the studying as I do just, it wasn't the right fit for my identity. It was, it was a leap to throw myself in an environment with a bunch of girls who I didn't necessarily connect to on the same frame of where I came from. Right. There was no transition from where you were to the seminary. It sounds like it was just like, throw you into the lake. Just threw me in. (laughs) (laughs) No bridge. (laughs) No. Wow, that sounds intense. Okay, when did you become an illustrator professionally? So it was about in 2016, I think or 2015 actually, where I was living in Seattle, Washington, and my brother who works for Chabadadora came to me and said, we have some illustrations that need to be done. And my entire life, I've always been creative. Took many art classes growing up and dance class and singing classes and drawing has always been something that's been a part of my life. I was no stranger to using Adobe Photoshop and Adobe Illustrator. There were programs that I played around with on my own free time anyway. And he had asked if I could try and just do some illustrations that he needed for something and they would pay me if they liked it. (laughs) And I said, sure, because I could use the money and I took on the challenge and they liked it. And I ended up working part-time for them. And then I ended up working full-time for them. And this sort of incredible relationship of making money, doing what you love sort of hit me all at once. And I was like, oh my God. This is amazing. And before that, I'd always been confused about what I would be doing for work. It's something that has been very challenging for me to decide, should it be? I thought about becoming a doctor and then I thought about becoming a nurse because I was looking for financial stability. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily because it was something that called to me, but because I didn't want to have to go through what I went through as a child. And as I started illustrating, I fell in love with it. I was like, wow, this is what I love to do. Yeah, that's really special feeling. Get paid to do what you love. It's incredible. Okay, I want to ask you about something that you mentioned to me when we were talking earlier. You said that your relationship with God was a big journey for you and tied into your childhood experiences and your healing journey. So yeah, just go for it. Tell us all about that. (laughs) So... I definitely had a confused vision of what God was to me because I never had the chance to discover who God is for myself. It was given to me in a time where I wasn't asking for it. And 
because of the trauma that I went through, my takeaway was that God is out there as some punishing figure who hates me and wants to just make sure that I never succeed at anything. And God is this crazy person, this crazy punishing person up in the sky. And I believed that there was a God, but this God was a very mean God. And it took me until adulthood when I began looking at my trauma and recognizing where I came from because, and I wanna just insert this, that after everything I went through, I went into adult life thinking, not realizing that what I went through was painful and almost forgetting about, selectively forgetting about a lot of the pain I went through and not remembering it until I started going to therapy. And I wrote down my life story for myself and it hit me and so many memories came back to me that I had completely forgotten about. And at the same time, I was going to therapy and we started talking about what my relationship with God looks like. And the crazy person in the sky is what came up for me. Mm-hmm. And my amazing therapist at the time told me that a lot of people who take their relationship with their parents and they translate that into what God looks like for them. And it's not, it's a subconscious thing, but when she had expressed it to me in much better words, it really hit home. Wow. Yeah. My husband talks about this a lot. He's a therapist and he talks about how people get their idea of God through their parents. Like that's how God gives us an example of him in the world. And sometimes like it's messed up, you know, it's really messed up. And that's all we have to go by. And as adults, we have to really explore and discover a real connection with a real God and not a fantasy made up, you know, trauma God. I'm so interested to hear about your therapist introducing God to you. That's a great question. I'm trying to figure out. So I was living in Seattle and I'd never thought about going to therapy at all ever. It was never a thing thought I needed until I was, I hit a rough patch with my husband and family members and I was talking to a friend one day and she said to me, you need therapy. Those are the best friends. And I was like, what are you talking about? Okay, fine. And I, but I took her seriously. I, and my husband had just also at the same time started seeing a counselor for things that he was working through. And, and I thought, okay, there was someone in the Jewish community that I knew about, someone had told me about, and I, was, I decided to reach out to her. And I really was looking for someone in the Jewish community because I feel like the religious life is so complex. I didn't want to have to explain Shabbos or different things that might upset me. I wanted somebody that was there on my level and and got what I was going through. So you were living a religious lifestyle at this point. Okay, you're married in Seattle. Mm -hmm. So you wanted to speak to someone who at least understood your lifestyle. Okay. Yeah, so... I went to seminary in Canada and then I went to seminary in Israel. And at that point I went on Shulchus and I was working at a Chabad house in Atlanta. And then I lived in Crown Heights in the basements, <laughs> that whole situation. And then I flew back to Israel and I met my husband and I was living and I still am. But at some point I went from wearing skirts with tights and long sleeves only to wearing t-shirts and shorter skirts and taking off the tights because I hated tights so much. Uh-huh. And from keeping Chal Yisrael to not keeping Chal Yisrael, 
not wanting to let go of religion altogether, but wanting to have my own place with my own identity was something right. that was really important to me. And I didn't really have the words to express that in my younger years before marriage, when I was going through this internal battle of identity, I didn't have the words, but it came back to me after I've been married for three or four years and I was living in Seattle and I was living in the Orthodox community there mm -hmm. and covering my hair and wearing skirts and keeping Shabbos and kosher, which I still all do, but. Finding your own way, your own expression to what was important to you. Yes. Okay, so tell me about this therapist. So we had hit that rough patch with my husband and I went to her and she had guided me towards a 12-step program that she thought would be helpful for me in dealing with my own life and my own story and with my relationship with my husband. And I was very open to it. I'm a very open person in general. So I went to go check it out. And the first time I went to a meeting, somebody was sharing their life story. And it was almost as if I heard a piece of my life story in theirs. Mm -hmm. And I had never experienced that before. So what was the 12-step program for? Like, did you have an addiction? What was it for? So I'm keeping it anonymous out of anonymity, but I'm definitely, I'm not an addict in the sense of using pills or drugs or drinking. So okay. it's not something that I've ever done. And I will never like to do, but I would say it was something, there are many different forms of 12-step programs and there are okay. forms that work through emotional issues and codependent issues. Mm -hmm. And that was the one that within that realm, that was what I was going to. Okay. Yeah. Cause I think people have an idea that a 12-step program is really limited to like an active substance addiction or gambling addiction, stuff like that. But it's, it's, seems like it's expanded so much you know over the last few decades that it's really like a personal growth program for so many issues you know so many things that people might be facing can be helped and it's am i is this correct like is it a spiritually based program the spiritual component is essentially learning that is believing in a higher power and believing that we have no control over our lives. We have choices that we can take, mm -hmm. but we are powerless over things because uh, people that identify as addicts often come from traumatic homes and children that come from traumatic homes grow up into a life where they are trying to control everything because they were so powerless as children, they grew up with tools and character traits that turn into trying to control. Mm -hmm. And what we discover when entering a 12-step program is the more we try to control our lives, the more it exploded, the more it imploded, the more loss of control we really had, the more anxiety that we had. And so through the 12-step program, we learned to let go of control, which is very scary yeah. when <laughs> going through day-to-day -day life, whereas you can apply for a job and oh well, and people with an addict mentality will, will scheme in their heads. Well, okay, so I applied for this job, so I'm going to scheme how I'm going to reach out to this person and go to this person and go to that person and, and send them flowers. I don't know, I'm making up a story. Yeah, it's good to hear an example. Right, but it's that level of spinning your mind in a way where you try so hard to control the situation and then you get the no, sorry, you're not getting this job and can't handle that no. Mm -hmm. So what's the solution in the 12-step program? 
So the solution is working through the steps. It's finding a sponsor. It's working through the steps. And the steps are online. They can be found. The first step is admitting that we're powerless. Mm-hmm. We're completely powerless and letting go. And then I believe step three is when we begin to redevelop our relationship with a higher power. And it's about finding a God of our own understanding, which is one of the most impactful pieces of that element that I used and applied to my own life, where I didn't have to believe in a God that Joshua Rabbi said that hurt me in a way that hurt me. That was not my God. And it doesn't mean that everyone has their own God. It's just a God of my own understanding was one of the most spiritual parts of the, of the program that really impacted me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's really impactful. Moving from that, kind of connected with what you just said, is something that we were discussing a while ago about honoring individuality within the religious Jewish community. Where are we going wrong <laughs> as a community? How do you see that? And what can we do better? Like, what needs to be done? What are your thoughts? Gathering my thoughts, I think a lot of what I see going on in the Jewish communities is that there is one way. There is only one way. There's only one way to follow the mitzvot and to lead a spiritual life. And if you don't do it this way, then you're not religious. And you know, you're bordering the line of being not religious anymore. Within the religious community, there is that extremity where it feels black or white. And I know that in certain communities in America, there is a lot of gray area, but I find that the mainstream voice of orthodoxy, especially with coming from the Chabad circles that I came from, they they don't have that. They don't have what? They don't have an openness for individuality and expressing religion. And I think I'll breach into that, if that's the right word, or or lead into that by explaining from my perspective, is that spirituality and connection with God is not a linear path where you go from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at our lives, our lives in general are not baseline flat. Like when you look at a heart, a heart is always beating. When a heart is flat, the person is not living anymore. Mm -hmm. Or for example, (laughs) this is an interesting example. I had injured my back few years back and my physical therapist had explained to me that there would be good days and bad days and it when I would be feeling better and I could walk around without pain and then suddenly the next day I'd be laying in bed again in pain and he said don't worry that's okay recovery is not linear there will be good days and bad days Mm -hmm. but the point is that as you go from the good day to the bad day you're going to keep on getting better every time you go up again and it gets better and it gets better. And I apply that to spirituality because religion, I say this all the time to my husband, religion is not a death a sentence. It's not a period. Religion is a practice. Mm-hmm. And in order for religion to be a practice, there has to be room for humanity. We are humans after all, we're not robots. And there has to be room in order to find our place and find our identity and find ways to express ourselves through the practice, especially as our identities change. Because for everybody who goes through life, we are not who we were 10 years ago. And so too, our religious expression should mold and change. And that doesn't look like out of the book. It never does. And if it does, that's great. (laughs) 
no problems against that, but it never does. There's always an evolution that happens. And I think that there needs to be an openness for individuality and expression within the community to allow a real and authentic relationship with God because we need to be honest with God. That is one of the most important things in life is honesty. We need to be, if we're going to believe in God, we need to be honest with God. What do you mean? Honest with ourselves. Okay. Yeah, tell me, what do you mean by honest with God? I think that a lot of us, I'm gonna say, I'm not gonna say us. People go through, especially in smaller communities, there's on one hand, this might be a part of what I think, there's image management. It's a huge piece that goes on in the community where we have to show everyone that we are X because if we're not X, we're rejected. And so in order to obtain that X level of perception, I'm within this community and I cover my hair and I'm wearing skirts and this is really me, but what if one day someone wakes up and they're like, I don't know if this is me, but they have to continue to doing, they don't have room to say, what if I wanna change my mind? Or what if today I wanna wear my scarf a little bit further back, but they can't because, because of what the community will perceive of them, that they're not religious, but really they're just trying to find themselves. Yeah, I love what you said about recognizing that we're like we're human beings. Like there's a human person in each religious Jew, right? It's still there. Like we don't lose that just because we're part of a community and we look a certain way. Like we really need to honor that we're a whole person. Whole person. We have to connect to it on all levels. We have to feel it. We have to do it. There's a level of doing and there's a level of feeling. And if a person is feeling or experiencing resentment, and what they're doing, we all know what resentment is. Resentment is taking poison and expecting it to kill the other person. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it builds up to resentment. And in recovery, they teach us that resentment is one of the worst things that an addict can hold on to because resentment will lead into disastrous future choices. And if someone is feeling resentful, then they're not connecting to God. They're not making space inside of themselves for God. There is no connection to God. Mm-hmm. resentment to me sounds like like a victim mindset and what's the antidote to that either from your own life from your own experience or um, maybe from the programs that you've been in if you're holding on to resentment and it doesn't always feel like a choice to let go of resentment right like sometimes it actually feels impossible and you feel completely justified and you are in a victim place which feels nice because you don't have to you're not blaming yourself but it also is very disempowering. Do you have experience with that? Like what, how do you get out of that? So to get out of resentment, we have to be rigorously honest with ourselves about our part in the situation. And sometimes we go through life and there are situations that we're not responsible for necessarily how the person spoke to us and that's why I'm resentful of them because they said blah, blah, blah. But what was my part in it? We always have a part. That doesn't mean that from someone who goes, gets out of a bad relationship, that if they were abused, God forbid, like there is the idea of, of someone being a victim and it's very important to acknowledge it in order to recover from it. Yeah. But after recovering from it, where are we responsible for our lives and for the actions that we take? And it's about looking back on what could I have done differently for myself? Sometimes it could be, oh, 
you know, I, I'm thinking of random examples, but I was at the store and I wasn't wearing my mask. <laughs> this is controversial. <laughs> and somebody yelled at me. Well, she shouldn't yelled at me because, you know, I'm allowed to not wear the mask. I don't know. Or maybe if you were feeling, you know, sensitive, don't go into that store. Go find another store where that person doesn't shop or go to a store where you know that they don't care if you wear a mask or not. And I'm not trying to talk about masks or not masks. I'm just picking a hot example. I'm yeah. not talking about what people should do or not do. Yeah, it's just you're just pointing at the reality that we usually have more options than we think in the moment. And when we take responsibility for where our part is in it, we usually we can come up with like a better option for ourselves, you know, something that just works better and that makes us feel better and that is just better for us. Yep, exactly. And if there was nothing that we could do, if there is nothing that could change the situation, then it's about prayer and letting it go mm-hmm. and asking God to take it away. And I've done that many times where there are certain scenarios where people in my life had said very mean things to me, justifiably mean, but I could no longer live with those resentments. If I had continued to live with those resentments, I would not be a whole person. I would be focusing on this negativity for the rest of my life. And so it was about learning to let go. Wow. So I have a story to share about someone in my life who I had extreme resentments to so much to the point that it was obsessive thinking. And especially at times where I was not feeling at whole, I would turn to resentment in my head. Oh, but this person did this to me and they did that to me and how dare they. And (laughs) I'm laughing because it's funny, but it's also, it was very impactful for me in learning how to let go. My sponsor had given me We went to an event and that same night she gave me this tote bag and in the tote bag she had loaded it up with the heaviest rocks and she said all of these rocks are the resentments that you're carrying this is how much they weigh physically and she made me walk around for an hour with this bag of rocks and at the end of the hour we went outside and for everything that this person had said to me that i was holding on to and feeling resentful for she told me to take the rock say out loud what the hurt was and throw the rock down and we were standing up high on like a like a second floor and there was no one underneath it it was like a rock like bottom so it was like safe environment nobody got hurt (laughs) (laughs) no rocks were hurt in this scenario but (laughs) but it was probably one of the most impactful things that I've done that changed me and we stood out there in the cold in Seattle in the middle of winter like everything that came up for me every resentment that I held on to I would say it out loud and throw these, and they're big, they're like huge rocks. They weren't little pebbles, it was heavy. And then I was like, okay, I did it. (laughs) And the miracle is that those resentments faded away. I can't say that sometimes there's a little voice far away, but I'm able to be like, I don't need that because I don't want it. There was an identification of knowing what resentments feel like. They feel like a bag of rocks that we're carrying. Yeah. And I got to learn what it feels like to let it go. Wow. That's incredible. So I just want to finish up and ask you what you want people to know about where you're at, maybe professionally right now. What are you speaking about? You know, once you're on here, like tell people what you want them to know (laughs) just quickly, because I know you're really busy beyond your illustration and then just how people can find you online. 
Thank you. Okay, so I am an illustrator that I love to draw pictures that include topics of women empowerment and Jewish identity and Jewish culture and Jewish history. Everything Jewish related is my passion, as well as I show up on Instagram as a Jewish activist and being a voice for Jewish people in a world online that is increasingly hostile, online and out and off the line, is yeah. hostile towards Jewish people, unfortunately. And so I try my best to show up and fight against anti-Semitism and anti-Zionistic beliefs. You can find me at my website, safiracreative.com. Safira is S-E-F-I-R-A and the word creative, which we all know that word. <laughs> that one we could spell. <laughs> Yeah, what more should I share? No, that's perfect. You're such an inspiration. And honestly, when I started illustrating, like maybe three and a half years ago, you were one of the only Jewish illustrators that I knew about and still probably one of the best. And you were such an inspiration to me. Like, oh my gosh, you can make this gorgeous digital art that is modern and Jewish and looks beautiful and there's a market for it and it was a huge inspiration for me. So thank you so much for that. And thanks for just being yourself online. It's really empowering to see your posts and everything that you're sharing and doing. And thanks for being so open and vulnerable and sharing your story today. Thank you. You can co-create this podcast with me by sending feedback and ideas for future episodes to sd at co-create.cafe. That's E-S-T-Y at co-create.cafe or on Instagram at sdraskin. If you like this episode, you can help more people listen to it by sharing it and by leaving a review. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.